Welcome to another edition of Sports with Friends. This is episode 396. My name is Seth Everett. It is baseball season. Wow. Another baseball season. This one is a little different. First of all, there's all kinds of question marks uh, surrounding baseball. Spring training has been a very big encouragement uh, with the new rules. Uh, I've been a big proponent of outlawing the shift. Uh, I've, I've said the shift is ridiculous. Um, the bigger bases, that's interesting. I want to see how that plays out. And a lot of people have been talking about this pitch clock and how it's changed the pace of the game. Uh, games are flying by. And I've talked to a couple of play-by-play announcers that I'm trying to book for uh, future episodes of the podcast. And I'll tell you, uh, everybody's been raving about the new rules. Uh, so I am going to see a baseball game this weekend. Uh, I'll see a game uh, in the first five days, I'm going to go to a baseball stadium as somebody who's been very, very critical of that sport. To that end, uh, there was a really interesting story and a really interesting book that was writ- written that I had a chance to read towards the end of last year. Uh, it is entitled Playing Through the Pain. It's about Ken Caminiti and the steroids confession that changed baseball forever. And Ken Caminiti was a really interesting story. Uh, He played during an era where a lot of guys were doing steroids. And I've always talked about, you know, covering baseball when the steroid era was going on. And Ken Caminiti was a guy that we knew did steroids. And there was no questions about that. Uh, But his story is much more involved in that. And today's guest is a guy by the name of Dan Good that I was introduced to. And he wrote this book. He did so much research. He interviewed over 400 people uh, about this book, a lot of his teammates. Um, Ken Caminiti died in 2004 uh, during an overdose. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it, it's a tarnished life. But he was the 1996 MVP, 1996, the first year that I covered baseball. So I thought there was a, a kismet to it. Here with the uh, opening of the baseball season, we could talk about the life and times of Ken Caminiti uh, here on the podcast. I thought that would be interesting. It is also the final four. Can you believe the four teams that are in the final four? Florida Atlantic. They play in Boca. Boca Raton. Uh, Also Miami, uh, San Diego State, and UConn. That is an unlikely final four. So nobody had them. That is really, really strange. We will talk to the head odds maker at BovadaSportsBook.com, Patrick Morrow, about the two matchups and uh, the latest odds on who can win the national championship. So let's welcome in the uh, longtime author. He's written a ton of books. This new book is entitled Playing Through the Pain, Ken Caminiti and the Steroids Confession that Changed Baseball Forever. Let's welcome in Dan Good. Dan, first of all, you know, I, I asked this. We've had so many authors on the podcast, and I, I get a different answer to this question every time. But what I wanted to start this conversation with is why? why what was it about Ken Caminiti that you saw and said, you know what, there's a book here? I, 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 and, and I don't say that with a derogatory tone, meaning – I'm not saying there isn't a book here. I've read it. It's 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 a book. <laughs> but what was it about his career that caught you to the point of where you said, I'm going to invest a certain chunk of my life into this guy? 
It's a really good question. You know, when I first started this book, I never thought I'd spend eight, 10 years putting it together. I never thought I'd spend so much time thinking about Ken Caminiti. But, uh, you know, as a baseball fan of the 1990s, I just loved his style of play. I loved his all out, you know, that grittiness, um, you know, his scowl. You know, he was just his nickname was Scary Man. I mean, he was just a scary player to watch. He was exciting to watch. I loved watching him play third base. You know, the way he dived for the ball, the way he just rifled the ball across the diamond. He won gold gloves. He doesn't get remembered for that, but he won gold glove. He should have won a lot more, too. Uh, He really was transcendent on defense, and he wasn't getting the national attention until he started really hitting home runs. And that's what that's a really frustrating thing. But, you know, I was always moved by him as a player. And after his career ended and he came forward in Sports Illustrated and talked about steroids and talked about how he used them and unflinchingly and honestly talked about this stuff. It really meant a lot to me, you know, as somebody who was interested in sports journalism, you know, seeing this story come forward. This was a bombshell when this dropped in 2002 and, you know, when he passed away two years later, it was just so sudden and surprising and, you know, maybe not surprising in the sense that we saw this downward trajectory. But, you know, the fact that this guy's 41 years old and he seemingly had so much to live for and it was just crushing and devastating to see him pass away so young. And I was just always moved by that. You know, I always felt like there was more there. And I always felt like somebody somewhere is going to write a book about him, you know, and for a while I was just fine with that. I wasn't even thinking about books. And I found myself with a lot of free time. I was actually working overnight, working in New York City for the first time in 2012. And I had do you nothing mind, to uh, do. Doing day. what? I was the overnight homepage editor at the New York Post. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And I was that forgotten web guy. I was over in the corner. Yeah, like yeah. people didn't pay attention to me. I was just there. And I was like, you know what? I feel like I want to do more. I want to, you know, tell a really interesting and meaningful story. And I would just kept being drawn to him and felt like, you know, now's the time I'm just going to start researching it. I spent like a year just researching his life. And then I said, you know what? I think there's enough here. You know, there's that, that feeling that maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe someone else would be better suited to write this than I was. Uh, so there was a hesitation there. And then I decided to start interviewing people. I started with his uh, his motorcycle guy, the guy who made his motorcycles. I figured if this doesn't go well, I have nothing to lose. And this guy doesn't know who I am. So it's fine. Um, and just kind of went from there and and was really just moved and, um, you know, really uh, compelled to keep going. I just felt like there was so much to his life that uh, that meant something. And his story mattered. And I, I really wanted to, uh, you know, celebrate that. And uh, and save that and keep it and make sure that it's told properly. Well, there's, a, there's so much there and uh, you know, so much that, that went on. Um, you know, you mentioned that uh, he died. Um, but what I think a lot of fans who have not yet had been privy to this story understand is that his drug issues were a lot deeper than steroids. And he didn't die from steroids. And I it just clear up that myth. Uh, I, I think that's the biggest thing because I remember I was working from Major League Baseball from 01 to 08. So basically yeah. the end of his career till his passing. And that was the first thing that people assumed. And social media wasn't a big deal until the very end of that, that time. But really, 
I would say that's the biggest misconception of Ken Caminiti. Would you agree? I do agree. You know, I, I obviously steroids helped him on the field for some time and then they hurt him. They hurt his body. Um, they weren't good for him, you know, but there is that misconception that steroids killed him. And I look at the cocaine use dating back to the 1980s. I look at the the hard drinking. I look at all the drugs he was taking to come up and come down from games. Like there was rampant drug use for him dating back decades, dating back a decade before he started using steroids. So I, I don't think steroids were his biggest problems. And he alluded to that in his uh, Sports Illustrated interview. He, he said he didn't think steroids were, you know, a big mistake in his life. He made other mistakes. You know, his drug use dated back uh, pretty deeply. And and that was one of the really troubling things to peel back the layers of that, you know, and to to recognize how deep that went. Because, you know, I think there was this idea that, you know, he was a good player for the Astros early in his career. He had a drinking problem. That's how it was presented at the time. And obviously drinking was part of the problem, um, but it wasn't uh, by any stretch all of the problem, you know, and then he, you know, got help for that in 93 and, you know, he had his, his great seasons in San Diego, you know, and then he backslid. And, you know, I, I think there was a lot of gray areas shadowing in uh, that was really happening. And it, it was it, his drug use went really deep and it went a lot further back than I realized. And, you know, what other people had realized at that time. More discussions on Ken Caminiti's complicated life in just a moment. But first, it's the NCAA Final Four. And that is time for gamblers and fans alike to join in and watch some college basketball. We'll preview these games with the head odds maker at Bavada, Patrick Morrow. All right, let's take a look at the matchups. Uh, Houston, Texas Energy Stadium. There's going to be like 50,000 people there. Uh, they've been uh, embracing this, uh, playing it in a massive stadium. The first matchup is the Darlings, Florida Atlantic from Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, Del Boca Vista is nuts. Frank Costanza is going to be in the clubhouse. San Diego State, another Cinderella under normal circumstances. But, uh, yes, San Diego State against Florida Atlantic. Seth, uh, yeah, two, two teams that we definitely weren't expecting to be previewing for Final Four weekend, but... Uh... We will absolutely take them. Uh, San Diego State uh, with a, just a completely you know, suffocating kind of defense against Creighton in the second half of that game on Sunday. Uh, you know, not the prettiest basketball to watch, but uh, effective. And that's really what San Diego State has been able to show all season is one of the better defensive teams in all of college basketball. They come into this one as two-point favorites at Bavada with about 80% of all bets on them. So once again, we will be rooting for the Florida Atlantic Owls over under sitting 131 and a half at now. And the other matchup, which uh, really, you know, if it was the national championship game, this is kind of a marquee matchup. You have the Miami Hurricanes, Jim Laranega, uh, the champions of the ACC against UConn uh, coming on from the Big East. Uh, UConn looking for its first national championship, but they have been uh, to the dance many, many times. Miami, it's his, their first Final Four appearance. Uh, this was a basketball program that they've talked about getting rid of at one point during the days of the U, uh, Miami versus UConn. Yeah, Seth, I, this is a really intriguing matchup here. Uh, Miami comes into this one as one of the best coach teams in college basketball. Uh, no slight against Connecticut, but Connecticut is playing the best basketball in the country right now. 
The advanced analytics really, really love this team who is just firing on all cylinders. And as a result, uh, you know, we're seeing a bit of a split in the action here. Uh, we're seeing more bets on Miami, Florida on the money line, but we are seeing more bets on Connecticut uh, at the minus five and a half point spread at Bavada right now. Uh, total for this one, much higher, much higher. Uh, not a lot of defense expected to be played in this one as the over-under is sitting at 150 right now. All right, so there's options for betters here. You can bet on each individual game, but now that we have the final four, what are the odds for one of these teams to win the national championship? Seth, right now, Connecticut is the outright favorite. They are minus 125 to uh, you know snip down those nets come Monday night. Uh, Florida Atlantic is right there at six to one. San Diego State plus three sixty-five, and Miami the U right there at five to one. Uh, no surprise that with Connecticut as the minus one twenty-five outright favorites. And, and aside from the futures, Seth, we have the player to win the most outstanding uh, player of the tournament award. And given that Connecticut is the outright favorite, it is no surprise that players like Adama Sanago, Jordan Hawkins are leading those most outstanding player award odds. Uh, Isaiah Wong with Miami right there at 10 to 1, Darian Trammell 12 to 1. It does look like Connecticut players uh, award to lose, but uh, in a tournament that's had so much madness so far, uh, it really is anyone's competition to win that trophy at Bavada right now. Our thanks to Patrick Morrow and enjoy the final four. This should be a good one. Who knows who's going to win this one, but if you want to place a bet, you know where to go. Now back to our conversation about Ken Caminiti with the author Dan Good. Let's, let's talk about the steroid era for a second. Um, my attitude always used to be, uh, I didn't care. Um, I wasn't morally uh, overwhelmed by this. It didn't impact my life in any way. What I used to say, uh, and I still say this, is if you were a friend of mine, I didn't want you to do it because I knew how bad it was for you. Um, and the only person I cared about if he did steroids or not was Ken Griffey Jr. And I've told that mm. story. We've actually told this story on the podcast when we had him on. Um, I looked him right in the eye and I said, even if you say yes, I won't report it. Like we, we, were, we were that close and I, I, yeah. I wasn't going to rat him out. And yeah. he looked me in the eye and I remember him saying, are you kidding? My dad would have killed me. <laughs> and, and I remember that and it always stuck with me. Um but Ken Caminiti was kind of the poster child for that. And I remember being on MLB radio and saying, well, look, I don't hang out with Ken Caminiti. If he wants to do steroids, I don't care. There were so many guys doing it. And what I remember from that era, if you took the rosters from 1997 and printed them out, I could circle six to nine guys on each team that I had heard some kind of rumor about. And oh. it was so rampant. So what I think, I, I think, and I think you established this is like, stop judging him. There were so many guys that didn't die three years after their career and they're not labeled the way he was. Yes. You know, and I think that applies to a lot of the big high profile players who have been ensnared in those clouds, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Mark McGuire, you know, this goes on and on and on. 
Uh, every single player from that era had to make that decision for themselves. We don't know. We don't know the bulk of the players and what they chose to do or not do. If you're a fourth outfielder trying to make the team, and this is life-changing money as opposed to riding the bus for the rest of your life, what decision are you going to make? If you're that middle reliever and you're the last guy to make the roster, what are you going to do? You know, and that goes on and on and on. And, you know, you have those players who decided to take this chance, decided to do what other players were doing. You know, there's dozens and dozens of guys from that era who are now in the Hall of Fame that we know nothing about in terms of what they did or didn't put into their bodies. Yet we label certain players as clean players and then we play, label other players as dirty players. And for the bulk of them, we really don't know. You know, it's it's a, a power and a testament to a player like Ken Griffey Jr. And you look at the upward and the downward trajectory of his career and it matches what you would typically uh, expect to see from a player of his caliber at his position. Um, but, you know, by and large, we don't know. And that's really the difficult thing. And we, we, people try to make these moral arguments of they're a cheater. You know, they cheated the game. They did this, they did that, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, um, this was rampant. It was happening across the league. You know, I look at in Ken's case, you know, he had a friend of his from high school who was helping him with his steroids program. And after he wins the MVP award, everybody comes to him. Hey, can you help set me up too? So he directs people to his friend. And now he has all these people across the league who are getting drugs from the same place. You know, and I, I think it's interesting seeing some of the hypocrisy of some of the players saying, oh, you know, I had no idea this was going on. You know, I'm really disappointed that other players are using you know, disappointed at Ken for coming forward and talking about it. And they're getting drugs from the same place that he is. It's so hypocritical. That's a great point. I, I mean, it, it, the the funny part about it is, um, you know, people talked about all the offense. The sport was more exciting then because the pitchers were doing it too. Oh, yeah. And the, the, you know, the fact is, and I don't want to get off on this, this nasty tangent, but, you know, if you listen to this podcast at all, you know, uh, this sport has become unwatchable. And yes. back then it was a thrill a minute. And you want to say that it was because of the steroids? Fine. But you're not taking those home runs away. And, you know, this my whole thing this past summer when uh, Aaron Judge was going for the record, um, you know, an, uh, an American League home run record is bullshit. Um, of course it is. Th that's not what it is. It's a major league home run record. You've done everything in your power to homogenize this sport. It's one sport. The American and National League might as well be the AFC and the NFC. There's no difference anymore. And so to say that this is an American League record is a crock. And so, you know, given that that time, I, like I just remember that era. Um, I remember in 98, I was covering the, well, in 98, I had a weird year. I started out covering the Rockies and then at the mm. all-star break, I got hired in Seattle and wow. I had moved to Seattle and um, you know, they were playing in the kingdom, but I knew there was a new ballpark coming. And I remember the Mariners in 98 weren't that interesting. And I didn't know anybody because I had just gotten there. You know, I got there in July yeah. and I knew every day where McGuire and Sosa were mm -hmm. every day. Every day I knew what they were doing, what pitchers they were facing. I knew what channel it was on, how to find it, what was going on. I'd be at the ballpark asking them to put the, the, the Cardinals game on to see that. Like, you can't remember 
what that was like because you know i was an intern you know in 94 when the strike happened but in yeah. 1998 baseball was the center of the sports universe yes and Ken Caminiti was a major part of that he was he was now it was so much fun watching baseball back then you know something i go back to during the 1998 season was when barry bonds hit his 400th home run and had his 400th stolen base he was the first player in baseball history to ever hit that level yeah. And there was no one there. There was no one at that yeah, game to cover that. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it was all McGuire and Sosa. And McGuire and Sosa were awesome. It was so much fun to watch that. You know, it was so much fun to watch a lot of these guys. You know, Ken in uh, 96, 97, 98 was that next level player. Uh, you know, he's, you know, going down to Mexico, getting food poisoning, you know, IV fluids and Snickers bars and hitting home runs. You know, I, there were just things happening in the game that were so fascinating and fun and different and new, and it doesn't feel that way anymore. More of Sports with Friends in just a moment. You know, I love hosting this show, and obviously I want as many people as possible to hear every episode. I put a lot of effort into them. The reality, though, is that podcast discovery, whether you're a podcaster or a podcast listener, is hard. That's why I've partnered with the folks at Marble. Marble's AI. Yes, AI. We're getting closer to the Knight Rider car. Marble's AI identifies the five most interesting moments in a podcast episode and instantly transforms them into searchable, shareable clips called Marbles. We've done close to 400 episodes of this show, and sometimes you want to hear about themes that we've done. You can search for hockey podcasts that we've done, football podcasts that we've done. If you want to hear about the paralysis situation with Eric Legrand or the release of Brittany Griner, we've done four separate podcasts on Brittany Griner's arrest. All the amazing coverage we did of sports and COVID. You can easily make a marble out of this. It's easy to create and share marbles from anywhere inside my episodes on the Marble app. And as a listener of Sports with Friends on Marble, I think it's cool that anyone can go in and be the first to claim something that's said on the show as their own personally created marble. You could share it on Instagram, TikTok, social media, and if you're old like me, you could even put it on Facebook. You can be the first to marbleize a moment on the show. And it helps me get discovered. If you're a podcaster, join me in marbleizing your show. Just head to marble.com. That's M-A-R-B-Y-L.com to get started. And if you're a listener that doesn't have a podcast, it's a great and free way to directly support Sports with Friends to get the app. Simply create and share one marble from something said on this show that you enjoyed, not something you hated. When you subscribe to my show on Marble, you'll get access to all the latest Marbles as they roll out. Marble is a free app for both iOS and Android users, so head to marble.com. That's M-A-R-B-Y-L.com, or search Marble in the app or Google Play stores. Change the way you listen to podcasts. Uh, what about uh, his time with the Astros? What can you tell us about uh, he came up, he played with Biggio and Bagwell and Luis Gonzalez. Like he, he played with those guys uh, yet, you know, he's known as a Padre. It's really interesting because he came up, he made his debut in 1987. He was batting 
at any stretch in in double a so he they won the double a championship and uh he got stuck uh still at double a to start the 1987 season you know it's him randy johnson and larry walker the three best players in the league jim eisenreich's in the league too you know and for the first month ken is batting 350 and he's still in double a like they didn't call him up they didn't move him up he's still stuck there so he's like you know how long am i going to be here am i going to be here forever are they have they forgotten about me uh, middle of the season, the Astros are coming off of the playoff appearance in 86, and they're struggling, and they decide to call him up from double A to the major leagues. So he makes his debut in July of 1987, his first game. He hits a home run, a triple. He scores the winning run. He makes a ton of great plays at third base. He goes on to win the National League Player of the Week award his first week in the big leagues, which was just such an awesome debut. It was such an awesome start. But you know, the thing that happens to a lot of players is pitchers adjust, pitchers make changes. And Ken wasn't ready to adjust to that. So he really struggled offensively uh, down the stretch in 87, 88. He showed up late to spring training a couple times. Uh, there was a lot of immaturity there. Uh, Hal and moved him down to AAA to start the season, which is a blessing in disguise because Craig Biggio is playing in AAA. So now Ken and Craig are teamed together. You know, he's finally finding his groove. He gets called back up near the end of the season. That was a lost year. 1989 was really when he established himself as a major leaguer, in part because of his time in winter ball in Puerto Rico that that offseason, you know, really helped him uh, establish himself, feel confident in himself and his abilities. And 1989 season was one of his best. It's, it's mostly overlooked because he was playing for a team that really wasn't that exciting. I mean, they had some opportunities to climb in the standings uh but they were overlooked it's the astros they got rid of nolan ryan so it wasn't the same team anymore and ken was awesome at third base he should have won a gold glove that year um you know but the next couple seasons were really down years for him you know in part because of the off field struggles in part because of the the drugs and alcohol so he wasn't playing to his abilities and the astros were disappointed and really turning over their entire roster all these Veteran players like Bill Doran, Kevin Bass, they all go, you know, to other teams, and now they're replenishing. They're restocking. Just loving these names. You can't see yeah. me, but I'm loving these names. You know, the Astros unload Larry Anderson to the Red Sox, and the Red Sox have a pretty stock farm system and say, all right, all right, we'll give you Jeff Bagwell, this third base prospect. And, you know, Ken now has a challenge for his job for the first time starting in 1991. So the 97 loss, 1991 Houston Astros come to camp with three third basemen in Ken Caminiti, Jeff Bagwell, and Luis Gonzalez, all fighting for the same position. You know, they're all lighting it up in spring training. And eventually Art House says, okay, Jeff, you know, why don't you go play first base? Let's go try that out. Luis Gonzalez will move you to left field. And this roster was amazing. You know, they had Kenny Lofton in the minor league system. They had Kurt Schilling in the bullpen, Daryl Kyle, Pete Harnish. Um, They were, yeah, they were, they were a great team, you know, and all they needed was a little bit of patience. And, you know, they had the first pick in the 1992 draft. Black and white uniforms. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, they they had the first pick in the draft and there was a shortstop out of Michigan that was pretty promising, you know, but they decided because they saw Ken as somebody who they were going to move eventually. And because they, you're, you're being they coy be for able- the listeners, that's Jeter. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> Jeter. The uh, the shortstop from Michigan was Jeter. But, you know, the Astros didn't really like spending money on draft picks and Jeter was going to command some money. And, you know, they recognized that eventually Ken would be leaving the Astros. So they drafted Phil Nevin, who obviously had a great career. Uh, not Jeter, but he had a great career. And, you know, I think from there it was it was preordained that Ken's time in Houston would be finished because now you have, you know, the number one prospect waiting in the wings for your job. You know, and even so, like Ken remained a really good team player. Uh, you know, he was mentoring and helping Phil kind of establish himself, understand what it takes to be a big leaguer. Like he was really taking Phil under his wing, which was really cool. But, um, you know, those Astros years were, you know, unfulfilled expectations, unfulfilled uh, opportunities. The team never quite got to that next level. And then finally, after Ken, you know, went to rehab after 1993, and gets to 1994 he's he's playing like he hasn't or he's playing like he hadn't until you know very the start of his career and playing like an all-star for the first time and that was a really special thing you know I, I think people lose sight and you talk about the steroids thing but people lose sight of the fact that this guy was an all-star and a gold glove caliber player regardless of steroids like without steroids he was an all-star like I think that's an important distinction to make this isn't just like hey, he started taking steroids and became awesome. Like he was awesome, took steroids and got even better. But, um, you know, there was always that feeling of unfulfilled expectations with Houston. You know, even that season in 94, the strike happens. You know, this team was going to make the playoffs most likely, oh, yeah. missed out. And uh, then he then he goes to San Diego and really lights it up and, you know, hits that next that next level of his career. But I always feel like there was that, that feeling that uh, you wish, at least for the Astros' sake, that like that team had more time to grow together. You know that Ken had reached his potential in Houston, uh, but he's still he's still adored by Houston's fans. But it's a different kind of feeling than the one people have in San Diego. You know, it's funny that baseball strike. You know, I've told this story on the podcast. I mean, we've done nearly four hundred episodes of the show, yeah. so uh, we've told a few stories on this this show, but. Uh, um, that summer was a unique summer. I, you know, I've often said the summer of 94, uh, the greatest summer to be an intern, uh, especially in New York. I interned at WFAN that summer, and I'm sure there wow. are plenty of people that had the uh, better internship. But that year, uh, the Rangers won the Stanley Cup. Uh, the Knicks went to the NBA Finals. OJ yep. happened. Um, <laughs> and and then the baseball strike. And we had... Uh, submitted dates uh the great uh john schweibacher uh submitted dates um that you could go to shea stadium to kind of shadow the mets broadcast wow and uh as an intern and the date that i got selected was the last game before the strike wow so i just happened to be there and I'm like fascinated. I'm like, this is the press box and this is cool. And this is great. And everyone's like miserable because like the, the, the hitters aren't running out ground balls because they don't want to, you know, they're like, what's the point? The season's over. And like, it was such a weird experience. And I'll just, I'll never forget that baseball strike. Um, wow. And it was just, it, it just crazy. And then uh, Ken is traded in this massive 12 player deal. Yep. And it was a it was a huge trade because I had never seen a blockbuster that had 12 guys involved. Two of no. them were players to be named later, but it was like this this massive, massive trade. 
Um, and I just never seen like these were things that I was impressed with. You know, like again, people talk about the home runs and the steroids and all, all that stuff. That wasn't the parts. You know, I thumbed through the book, and when I did, those were the things that impressed me because those are memories that I that that I had uh, of being there in '95. Um, I was in the Astros system. I worked in the New York Penn League. Uh, wow. I did the Auburn Astros. They were the, now they're the double days, but they were the called the, the Auburn Astros and Julio Lugo was on our team. Yes. And Ramon Castro was on our team <laughs> and our manager was Manny Acta. Wow. And it was wild. Um, and it was just, so I have like Astros hats and uh, from that logo, that, that logo, <laughs> like the, from that logo, from working with the Astros. It was so, so weird. Anyway, he goes to San Diego and he becomes this monster star, wins the MVP award. Uh, the Padres make the playoffs. Um, then, of course, you know, I'm, I'm jumping around, but they eventually go to the World Series. This is this is a major chunk of their history. And he's right at the center of it. He he is the face of that franchise. Yeah, he really was. You know, and, and you look at Tony Gwynn as Mr. Padre and, you know, he's he's that that next level greatest, greatest one of the greatest hitters i've ever seen yes you look at ken and ken was that player in that moment you know tony Gwynn was the 80s and the 90s there was a lot of lost years there for the team he was always consistent and great uh but ken was really the engine that drove that team you know he was the enforcer he was the teammate that i think people always saw him being able to be he was finally that player you know he rose to that level you know 1996 especially you know the first series of the season he dives and and seriously injures his rotator cuff you know he tears his rotator cuff and plays through that the entire year you know people look at it and say oh he gets heavily involved with heroin and things like that for like when he's hurt no 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 that was there was a steroids thing so that's when his steroids ramped up it was 96 and it was because of the rotator cuff injury um because he felt like he wasn't going to be able to help his team and the potential was there for him to walk away. He was he was even thinking about retiring because he didn't want to be a detriment to his team. You know, and his friend uh, from high school, Dave, was like, you know, if, if you want, I can help you. And eventually they crafted a program together. But that was really strengthening up his arm to be able to play, you know, and, and for him to put up the numbers, he did 40 home runs, 130 RBIs, uh, 330 batting average. Like he was he was stellar in the second half that year and carried that team at times, you know, and he, he really sends a message to the rest of the team when he's playing through all these injuries, when he's playing through so much pain, through so many issues and problems, uh, it sends a message to everybody else. Like you need to raise your level too. like, you need to, to match that. You know, you're not going to go and tell Bochi like, Hey, I'm, I want a day off. You know, I'm going to ask myself out of the lineup today when, you know, Ken's literally, taking IV fluid and Snickers bars to stay in the game. Uh, But he just, he was a leader. I mean, I look at even when they were playing the Dodgers in the last series of the 1996 season, and they were down two games going into the series. They won game one and they came back and won game two. So they were tied and they found out that they were going to either win the wild card if they lost the game, the next game, or they would win the division. And Ken was like, we're not celebrating. We're not celebrating. We're going to, we're going to celebrate when we win the division. We're, we're, you know, waiting till tomorrow. 
And, you know, it sends a message to Bob Tewksbury, who's going to pitch the next game. Like I need to, I need to bring it, you know, Tewksbury pitches seven Bob innings. They end Tewksbury, up winning the game. <laughs> yeah. He was awesome on uh Chris Quinn hit a double and in this clutch moment, you know, when it was really cool too, with a Chris Quinn hit because he had been so cold the entire second half of the year and Bochi called on him and, he showed up at the moment they needed him and he hit a double and they win the game, win the division. And then it's like, okay, now we can celebrate. You know, I, I think that just, he set the tone for that whole team and 1996 helped the Padres believe that they could win. So after the 1997 season, even though they had a lost year, they drop in the standings, they still knew that they had the core of a good team there. And it, it helped them to take that next step to go get Kevin Brown you know, to go make some big trades and bring in the people they needed to to go deep into the playoffs. So they kind of came out of nowhere in a sense because people looked at the Astros or the Braves in 98 as the top teams in the National League. Here come the Padres and they've been waiting in the wings. They're ready to go. And it was really neat to see 1996 and how that influenced 98. You know, when you look at uh, Ken's impact, you know, I, I think you can't overlook that, you know, because after the 98 season, they have the vote for the stadium, uh, you know, for San Diego voters, you know, and if they don't approve this funding for this public stadium, um, it's possible that the Padres leave town. And you can draw a line and basically say that, you know, Ken was a huge impact on helping to preserve and to keep baseball in San Diego, because I, I think he did have a huge impact there. What was it like writing a sports book compared to uh, some of the other books that you've written? We talked about it at the beginning of the podcast, but you wrote a book on uh, Trump, uh, which must have <laughs> yes. been, uh, been a hoot. And yes. uh, and also, uh, did you write a book on Microsoft? Did I read that correctly? Yeah, I wrote a, a business profile book about Microsoft. It was for this business profile series uh, for HarperCollins. And it was, I mean, it was like 40,000 words. I wrote it in three or four months. I interviewed a half dozen people. You know, it, it's interesting because for a book that you're looking at for a short timeline, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to do what I need to, the bare minimum to get it done. You know, you look at it from an efficiency standpoint, say, I need to get this, I need to get this, I need to do research here, you know, and for a book like the one on Ken, which took so much longer you know, that was more of let me see what I have. And then I decided eventually, let me start moving forward with this. Um, you know, I think I think that working on all these other books informed the way I approached the book on Ken, because I understood the process of outlining, of mapping out, of setting goals for myself, word count goals, um, expectations for what I wanted to accomplish. But it was really interesting because when I sat down and started actually writing, there was so much stuff. There was so you, you interview 400 people and you get to the point where you're like, okay, I, I have this. There were some pieces I had to patch up, but like I, I had it, you know, it wasn't an issue of I need to go out and do some more digging and find this and that and talk to this person. It was, I have so much stuff. I have the exact quotes I needed. It was really special, but I'm happy that I was able to write a couple other books beforehand to get accustomed to mm. writing books. You know, I, I think with books, everybody, it's this huge task, you know, but you look at it from the standpoint of, you know, my book on Ken was 130,000 words. That's a lot of words, you know, it's a lot to put down. <laughs> Some of my other books are like 40, 50, 60,000. Um, 
you know, but I, I, for me, when you read them on a Kindle or on an iPad, you don't notice that. I don't, I didn't <laughs> even think about, it. you know, when they sent me the, the PDF, I just read it on a device. I didn't, yeah. so it's not like you're holding a thick book or a not thick book. Like that's, <laughs> I didn't ever dawned on me. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. I, for me, the, the focus is being interested in the topic because not every topic is going to be as interesting as Ken Kennedy's life and career for a book. But I think as a writer, if you can stay interested in the topic, if you can find things to be interested in, it really helps. You, you never want to be disinterested in writing it just to write because you have to, you know, and, and that's really for me is picking projects that are going to motivate and inspire and excite me. And so it's not just work. It's not just drudgery of like, oh, I have to do this today. But like you really want to be excited because you want the reader to be excited. And I, I think that needs to translate. Um, social media uh, in the time since the book's release. And also it's nominated for the Casey Award. Um, how has social media helped? I mean, for somebody who wrote a book on Trump, uh, too bad during the time of his uh, Trump University, uh, there wasn't <laughs> social media at that point. Um, what's your what's your theory on it? How I mean, you know, <laughs> by the time this podcast is released, <laughs> Twitter might be over. Anyway. It might be. You Never know, mind. It's, interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, I think social media is a great platform. It has been a great platform for me to promote my work, to connect with people who I otherwise might have not connected with to get my messages out. So I think that's an important thing. And, and obviously being able to share information is a huge thing. But then we see the flip side. We see the negatives, you know, undercutting democracy, um, you know, promoting hate. Like there's so many things that are wrong with social media. And it's a shame because there's so many things that are right about social media too. And it's that balance of, you know, you want people to use things the right way, but they inevitably people are going to misuse and, and do things wrong. And I think there needs to be safeguards around those things. But, um, you know, I've enjoyed generally using social media, um, you know, and it's, it's really neat to connect with other writers, um, people who've played baseball, you know, and, and I've used social media to connect with, I don't know, maybe a hundred or so of my sources for the book. So there's some good there, even even if it's frustrating and even if there are some some negatives that we're confronting more visibly right now. Well, it's great. Um, how can people find you on, again, uh, unless all the platforms are down? I'm on Substack. Um, oh, okay. I do have that's, a Substack. That's better. You do that. <laughs> I, I like posting essays on my Substack. Um Dan Good Stuff. That's the Substack. Um, I have a Twitter, dgood73. Don't know how that will be around. Um, those are my two big things. I like LinkedIn. I, I've been posting on Instagram a little bit, but I'm, I've never really been an Instagram person. So uh, not really huge on that one, but I would say Substack, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Um, but it's just been, it's been neat. You know, it's been really exciting. You mentioned the Casey Award. It's been really special and such an honor to be nominated because there's so many good writers and good books every year and you know just to be one of the 10 is is a really special thing 
Well, congratulations on it. Continued success. Uh, I'm so glad that Ken Caminiti, of all players, uh, connected us and we were able to have you on the podcast. It's been an absolute thrill. And uh, you have an open invite. Uh, you, you just have to write a sports book. <laughs> well, I'll keep that in mind. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. That is Dan Good. And uh, what a great book. And, you know, I want to congratulate him for being nominated. Ah, baseball. Look, uh, I checked out spring training. I said that in the open. I'll hope the new rules come into fruition and make the game more watchable. I'm having an open mind. Next week, we are talking about the bankruptcy of the RSNs known as Bally Sports Network. There is such a big sports story that I think is being undercovered. It could change the face of sports, not just sports television. And we're going to talk about it next week on the podcast. So make sure you hit that subscribe button. Make sure you check out wherever you get in this podcast. Make sure you rate, review the show, and continue to get it delivered right into your inbox. We'll see you next week. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. I'm about to go, and then you'll know for me to stay got to be me you'll never be in doubt that's what it's all about you can't take me for granted and smile count on grace i'm gone forget reaching me by phone because i promise i'll be gone for a while when you see me again i hope that you have been the kind of person Taking up my time